Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Please be seated. As many of you know, we're in a discipleship series right now at St. Michael, and really what that means is what does it mean to follow Jesus? Unfortunately, that phrase has become so common, it's easy to almost not hear it anymore. But I suggest to you that discipleship is a big deal. It's bigger than grace. It's bigger than gratitude. It's bigger than generosity. It is about aligning ourselves with Jesus Christ and saying, where you go, I will go also. That's the kind of discipleship we're talking about, the kind of discipleship that actually changes everything. But today, in in the lessons both from Exodus and from Matthew, I think we have a problem. Because it's easy to say, let's follow Jesus, let's hook our wagon to that train. But every now and then we get stories in Scripture that make us stop and say, whom am I following? Who wants to follow A God like that, a God of wrath, a God of destruction, a God of anger. And I think if we're honest, I think when we ask ourselves, do I want to be a disciple of Jesus? We must grapple with the question, what kind of God are we following? What do we believe about that God? And therefore, how will we live out our discipleship? So let's look at the passage from Exodus. Let's look at the passage from Matthew. Let's unpack it and understand the context so that we can decide if this is one whom we trust, because that's really what discipleship is all about. Whom do you trust? So in Exodus, I need to tell you a little bit that's happened before and a little bit that happens afterward because it's very important to the story. As you know, Moses and God have a very special relationship. In fact, it's almost as though God would just continue on with Moses and leave everybody else behind because Moses is a man of faith and faithfulness and the bond is strong. So Moses has this pattern of going up onto the mountain, communing with God, drawing near to God such that his face shines. And right before this passage, the Lord has given him divine instruction, what godly play calls the 10 best ways to live. And those 10 commandments and those 10 best ways are put on a stone tablet and Moses is getting ready to come down to the people and to share the basis for the covenant that they have with God. And that's a very important part of this story, that God has called Israel to be a holy people, to be separate, to be different, so that as the nations of the earth look at Israel, they see something different than the kingdoms of the world and they follow God God, and find life and health and wholeness. So that's what precedes the story. But at the camp, something else entirely is going on. Basically, the people get bored. They get impatient. Who is this God whose name we do not know? Who is this God whom we cannot see? Aaron, take the gold from our ears and from our noses and from our wrists and melt it down and form something that we can worship. Make it tangible. And so Aaron, the high priest at the time, takes the people's gold, melts it down, forms a calf, and then builds an altar in front of it, and the people begin a festival, and it was the celebrations like their neighbors of debauchery and revelry 
and probably sexual immorality. Because there's the danger for the people of Israel that they will assimilate with the peoples that they are near, that they will become undifferentiated from the Canaanites. And that's why this story matters so much, is that the risk is that they will become just like all the other nations. And so they worship and they revel. And this sound comes up the mountain to God and to Moses. And it says that God's anger burns hot. And I suggest to you, it's a righteous anger. It's a proper anger. It's an anger that says you continue on this path. You will break the covenant. You will go to your destruction. What parent will let a child take an action that will put their very being at risk? And so we get this report of God's anger burning hot. But what's really interesting is how Moses responds. It's almost like they switch roles. God becomes almost like the mortal and Moses becomes like God praying for the people, appealing to God's mercy, asking for forgiveness. And it says that God listening to Moses changed his mind and did not destroy the people as he intended. Do you see that? Do you see what Moses is doing? That Moses is doing what a disciple actually does. Not only learns from the master, but also engages with the master to ensure that the whole enterprise is on the right track. But then Moses comes down the mountain with the tablets, and it's almost like that God-likeness, that good discipleshipness wears off, and Moses becomes his true self, as we saw in Egypt. And his anger overwhelms him as he sees the people and he hears the revelry and he throws the tablets on the ground, breaking them. And then he goes to Aaron and he interrogates Aaron, basically saying, how could you do this? And Aaron's response, I'm sorry, but it is awesome. It's like every child who has ever been caught doing wrong, I just threw the gold into the fire and out came a calf. I mean, the Hebrew is perfect here. He has no responsibility. Out it came. What what was I supposed to do? And that humor, though, is followed immediately by something very scary. Moses melts down that calf, takes the powder, mixes it in water, and has the people consume it. It's like a reverse Eucharist. They're no longer consuming the divine word of God and the being of Christ. They're being filled with this uh, idolatry. They literally have to consume it, but it gets worse. And this isn't in the scripture lesson. And the lectionary often does this. It thinks you're precious and can't handle what happened. Let me tell you what happens. Moses goes to the entrance of the community and he says, all you who follow God, join me. And the sons of Levi come with their swords at their thighs. And Moses says, execute your family, your friends, and your neighbor. And they go, and over 3,000 Israelites are slain that day at the hands of Moses and the sons of Levi. And then to top it off, God sends a plague. So if you're reading the Bible, I think the message you want to take is idolatry is really, really bad. And to follow something other than the one true living God is really bad. It's so bad that we will slay our family in the name of that one true God. So think about this. I suggest to you, and there's different interpretations of this, that on the mountain, Moses was on track with his discipleship, praying for mercy, 
appealing to the goodness of God. And when he came down the mountain, he lost sight of his discipleship and he became filled with his own anger. And this justice that he executed on behalf of God was not God's desire. Do you remember? God repented of his wrath and did not destroy the people. So for Moses to go and do that means that he took upon himself something that only God can do. And in so doing, he sinned. That's story number one. And if that's not enough, we get story number two in Matthew, the great wedding feast. Now, Luke and Matthew both tell the story, but in decidedly different ways that tells you what they care about. A king has a son who's getting married, and the invitations have already gone out to the invited guests. They have the invitations. It's time for him to send his servants to call the people to the banquet. Now, this is a king, and I want you to remember at this time in the Roman Empire, don't think U.S., think Roman Empire and emperor. If the emperor tells you to do something, you do it. And to disobey that, and not only to disobey that, but to mock it, and not only to mock it, but to kill the emissaries of the emperor, there is one available option, and that is to destroy the people and burn their cities. That's how the world works. That's how empires work. So sure enough, these invited guests refuse the invitation, and they kill the slaves who bring the good news, and so the king then destroys those hard-hearted guests and burns their cities. But Moses goes on, I mean, I'm sorry, Matthew goes on. He then talks about the gathered, the good and the bad. It's a really interesting phrase. And one of the guests isn't wearing a wedding robe. What's the big deal? Well, here's what this means. In Matthew's community, there were a variety of people in terms of their behavior, in terms of their discipleship, in terms of those following God. And the community was getting agitated because some were good, some were bad. What do we do with this unfaithfulness? And Matthew does something very radical. He basically says, judgment belongs to God, to the king. Your job is to send out the good news and let God take care of the rest. So in a sense, Matthew was telling his community to hold back. Don't judge one another. Let God figure it out. So this one without a wedding robe is one who is not righteous. The robe stands for righteousness. And what it says is in the fullness of time, in the end times, the king will throw that one into the outer darkness because he has basically been an imposter. He has not been a disciple of the Lord. So we have two stories here, both involving fury from the God of Israel and from a king, but also lessons that are surprisingly similar in terms of saying justice belongs to God. It is God's job to execute justice. And yet over and over again, you have people, you and me, who think we're suited to make a decision about somebody else's soul and somebody else's walk with God. And guess what? We don't. We have no business applying that judgment to others. I suggest that was the original sin in the Garden of Eden, was knowing enough to think that we could judge others, and we can't. When I was a child, I don't know, I guess I was probably about eight years old, I hung around with my next oldest brother wherever he went, and we went to a friend's house, and they were older, and I was younger, and I remember at one point, he and his friends went into a room and closed the door and wouldn't let me in, and I was out in the living room. I didn't know what was going on, but I could hear the phone, and I could hear calls being made, didn't understand what was happen, happening. 
But I found out later as I was walking home with him that they'd been making prank calls. And not just funny prank calls, like really rotten prank calls. And we get home, and it's our little secret until the police car pulls into our driveway. And I am sweating because I know exactly why they're there. And I stay in my room, and the police officers go around into the backyard with my parents, and they call Ron out, and then eventually they call me out. Now, I am already crying by the time I'm opening my bedroom door, and so my dad just looks at me like, hang tight. But my dad was never one to show anger, and he was never one to be furious. And the kind of white anger, hot anger I saw in him was scary because he knew that his boys had done something that was really off track. And so Ron gets probably three spankings with heat for the seat, which was a paddle back in the day. Rarely used, but when it did, you didn't forget it. And I got one. And I will tell you, that made a profound impact on me in terms of the choices I would make and whether it was acceptable to do that kind of behavior. I believe that that kind of righteous, holy anger that wants to prevent us from harm is the kind of anger we're talking about today with God. If you look around our world today, everyone's angry. Everyone's angry at everyone. This party's angry at that party. We're angry about this because of this action, right? We're all feeling like we're righteously enraged. You know what the lesson of today's story is? Judgment belongs to God, not to you. It is not your job to execute justice upon your enemy, no matter how off track you think they are. I think we would be wise today to practice what Moses did on the mountain, to pray to God, to ask for mercy, and to ask God to change God's mind from the destruction he intended. What would it look like if we took a step back, if we placed down our proverbial weapons, if we took a deep breath, and instead of accusing our neighbor, pray for God's mercy for us, for our blindness, for our hardness of heart, and let God handle the rest. And if the Bible is any signal, God will show mercy on his people because God loves creation beyond measure. So who wants to follow a God like today's lessons? I do. I want to follow a God like that. I want to follow a God who is full of mercy and who never tires of calling us to new life. And I hope you will follow that God too. Amen.